I'm Paul Hamill and you're listening to the Grassroots Coach Podcast, a podcast for grassroots soccer enthusiasts. There's so many problems uh, which are associated with trying to be elite too soon. Every club that walks in the door, that has a child walk in the door, five or six, their ambition should be to be have that relationship with that child until that child brings its children through the doors uh, years later. Every club should want that six-year-old to play for their over 35s. Yeah. 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 But in Ireland, we've uh, we've had this desire to win things. And I always just say, oh, yeah, it's great. You've won the under 12 league. Yeah, who won it last year? Nobody ever remembers. In this episode, I'm joined by Stephen Finn, UEFA A coach and member of the Football Research Group at Waterford Institute of Technology, and Mark Rodden, football commentator and journalist, where we discuss the elite player pipeline in Irish football. For me, the, the goal of any grassroots coach should be to develop a player to reach his or her potential. And for elite players, I suppose, what is that, that full potential? Well, it could be playing at professional level. And for us in this country, it is playing at League of Ireland level, traditionally in the UK. And I suppose the ultimate is playing for your country at senior level. So for a coach to have influenced a player at grassroots level to get to that senior level, I think, you know, is, is fantastic. And to be able to have had an influence on that player's um, progression to that level, I think, is, is just uh, you can't get it any better. And, and I'm interested, interested to talk to you two on what the state of play is currently, in your view, in relation to player development and that pathway from grassroots up to senior international level. Well, I suppose it's something I've been fascinated by for a very, very long time. Um, and I know that there is a desire to improve in our country, but we have a unique set of circumstances which essentially, you know, make us like I, I I would think only Lithuania because basketball is so big in Lithuania, but I can't really think of any other country that has in Europe in particular has such a massive uh, field sport influence on kids competing with soccer obviously I mean I mean the GAA and uh, like I played GAA all my life I'm still a member of a club and, and, and I love and I love the GAA as being part of uh, Irishness but what we've achieved in football bearing in mind that essentially 3,000 of our best male players and probably a thousand of our best female players are playing another sport at a very very high level very serious level generation upon generation it means that everything we've achieved in soccer has actually been very impressive when you put it into context but that doesn't mean we can't aim to be better and I do believe that uh, there has been a desire to improve structures and there's been resistance to change because there will always be resistance to change there's also a nostalgia based around schoolboy football um which has been, which is, is understandable because people always like to think back to the examples of the successes and then say, <clears throat> well, there you go, that was proof that worked because player X came through schoolboy club A and had a great career. Therefore, that model was perfect and never needs to be changed. 
my experience of schoolboy football as a player was absolutely terrible. It was useless. Like there was so little that you could say about it that was good other than volunteers uh gave me their time to bring me out to play football at the weekend. Uh, but in terms of the concept of me fulfilling my potential as a player, it was minimal. I, very, I think the first time I met a professional coach was when I was around 17. That was Christy Lockheed, who came out to do a coaching session with the coaches at Rack Hill Boys, who, you know, that was a club where I had moved into the community uh, as a teenager. So I didn't have this nostalgic view of schoolboy football. I felt it was great for the for the fellas who were good, but for the vast majority of other people, room to improvement was massive. And then having coached with uh, Belvedere for a few years, I was in with one of the super clubs and I, I, I found it very enjoyable. But being honest, outside of the matches against the two or three best teams, we didn't really get many challenges week on week. So now we have the underage League of Ireland. And the thing that jumps out with me is those strong schoolboy clubs from Dublin have been resistant to it. There's a, a desperate need for uh, making it better for kids. And it has been the case. So if you take an example, so Seamus Coleman played for St. Catherine's in, in Killy Beggs and was discovered by accident and went into Sligo Rovers. But if Seamus Coleman was with St. Catherine's today, age 13 or 14, opportunity to go to... Finn Harps or to Derry City's underage teams. And instead of having a gimme every 10 matches and then maybe one or two good <laughs> games, he'd have good games every week. And I, I experienced this when I went to Shells under 17s. I coached that team for two and a half seasons and every single match was a good match. You know, you'd play away to Longford, you'd play away to Monaghan, you'd play away to Sligo, uh, Finn Harps, Derry City, uh, whoever. Always a good game. So for the kids outside of Dublin, the League of Ireland underage structure has been really good. Um, so I think there's a, a desire to get better. There's resistance to change. But from my mind, we're not even at, at the halfway stage. I think we have a huge way to go. Um, and I know I'm kind of talking for a long time here, but the, the, for me, the next challenge is to marry the school game with the club game. So in other words, uh, if we could create an environment where all of the kids from the same club go to essentially the same school, we would then have a situation where uh, the coaches could train them during the day as opposed to in the middle of the night. They could have access to them five or six days a week. And the loss of the our previous route, which was just send them all to England, which was uh, a disastrous plan in my view. Uh, but the loss of that will be replaced by now having greater access time. And Damien Duff actually led the way, in fairness to him, with uh, Shamrock Rovers underage when he was training uh, his kids before they went to school in the morning and trained them again. I think I think that photo of Damien, you know, that early morning photograph where you where you see him coming with the bag of balls. I think that's nearly will nearly become as iconic as his you know, some of the pictures of him as a player, you know, uh, in time, uh, I, I believe. Mark, your own take on that question of where, where do you think where we currently stand as, from a player development perspective, whether that's into professional game, but ultimately to, to serve the national team? Yeah, I'm, I'm always very um, wary of uh, 
talking up the the need to get kids playing more seriously um, too soon because ultimately it is about enjoyment as well. But um, I think we are or we have been a long, long way behind. And if you look at Germany and Belgium and countries like this, they kind of realised around 98, 2000 when they had their own sort of, from their own point of view, disastrous results in tournaments. They said, what are we doing wrong? And, you know, with Germany, it was 2014 World Cup. You see the, the height of... Uh, uh, their their changes and with Belgium I think you've seen it in the last four or five years you know so they made all these changes so I'm just thinking I can make a, a simple comparison which again to me was a bit a bit too much almost but uh, a friend of mine lives in Berlin and his son is about 10 now I think and really talented player but I remember when he was about five he was getting proper coaching he had the option to get proper you know you can have there's a football qualified football coach here who will go through some stuff with the kids you know shooting drills whatever it might be and on the one hand you're kind of going that's that's a bit too much you know it's only an hour a week or whatever but still even if it's linked to school it's it seems a bit too too much pressure um but that's what you're up against as well so i think steven's point about the regional development has been really good because that's I talked. I did a piece with Fergal Harkin a couple of years ago, and that's what he talked about. He's obviously with Manchester City now, and um, deals with a lot of younger players. And he's seen the change. And he sp- he spoke about you know back in his day, some of the indoor um, facilities would have sand on them and stuff like that up in Donegal because it, there's nothing else. And that was the big miss for him. And it's it's it comes into what Stephen says as well was not only just adequate facilities which is obviously huge but also the fixtures like these guys are playing he's you know he he didn't have enough games for one and then it was the quality of games so I do think my parents are from Donegal so I do see it as well the the development of a club like Finn Harps where they're getting players coming through academies is is a massive thing and you see that reflected around. Uh, the country as well with different clubs and you see it reflected in the in the underage national teams as well I think there's a much bigger spread you know it's not just Dublin or Cork or whatever it's uh, sure. a lot of different countries are, are, are county Surrey are getting uh, more representation and that's that's the way to go as, as Stephen said I think it's it's slow but I do think the change is happening I'm not I'm not saying that I think that kids should be uh, streamed into highly structured highly competitive stuff very early uh, in fact the opposite for me I'd be happy I'd be happy if the League of Ireland under I started uh, under 16 maybe under 15 uh, I don't I don't personally see the benefit of the under 13 league like it's funny Chris van der Hagen uh, has made some presentations he's with the Belgian FA I've seen him speak three or four times and he's brilliant. He talks about the journey that they made on and they, they talk about the green bananas, which is the bananas which are, take longer to ripen. But I was looking at and he was showing the structures. And when we have the Kennedy Cup age group, uh, under 13s slash under 14s, they still hadn't even got to 11 aside in Belgium. Mm. So uh, <laughs> to me, as a futsal advocate, I've like I helped bring the game into Ireland uh, I'm passionate about it. You know, the sm- the longer children are exposed to small sided games, the better as far as far as I'm concerned. They don't need to learn how to run an offside trap. Running an offside trap can be taught to literally anybody 
at any stage once they're prepared to listen to you. It's not a particularly complicated thing. So banging them into playing 11 v 11, uh, age 11 or whatever to me is totally unnecessary. So having a National League at uh, under 13 for me was unnecessary. Yeah, Stephen, if I, if I could just come in on that, because a couple of the podcasts I've, I've had um, are talking about that. Now, now, to bear in mind that the people who were contributing on it would be from the clubs that you spoke about a few minutes ago, would be the, the traditionally the, the big clubs who mm-hmm. would have had, you know, would have been in the top divisions. So their view would be that the under 13 National League is, is too young. Um, I would say if there was ever to be a compromise, and I'm sure this will be trashed out over time, I would say the compromise is probably under 15. Mm-hmm. The, the impact from what I believe is with, with it being at under 13 level, it's was these, these clubs, particularly the elite ones traditionally, are their focus now would be from when, it, when a young player comes in at the start, say six years old, that that development is up to six to under 12. You know, it's mm-hmm. almost like that. It's going to finish at that point. And then from 13 onwards, it becomes more social football for want of a, a better term for it, which Mark, you referred to. I'm a great fan of social football. My my 14-year-old is, I don't like the term a social player, but he's, he's not going to be elite. He's not going to be a fresh professional player. And if the term for that is a social footballer, <clears throat> that's what he is. And if he keeps playing up until his leave insert for me, I'm going to be delighted to have that distraction of having something else, you know, when you get to exam time and stuff like that, that you have other things, you know, for your mental health and well-being, social, friends, all that kind of stuff. But certainly, Stephen, the from the bigger clubs, I think they're saying under 13, too young because of the impact it's having on their clubs, losing losing the best players. And that 15 is is probably uh, something they, that would be acceptable. Yeah. So can I challenge that, though? You know, I've heard people involved with the big scuba clubs talking about, oh, we're for, being forced to become community clubs. They feel, some of these people, not all of them, obviously, some of them feel aggrieved that they're essentially being, you know, made to become community clubs. I, I don't understand what's wrong with that. Like, for me, like, there's so many studies that you could choose. Erling Haaland would be considered a community player if you looked at where he was at 12, 13, 14, because he was playing everything skateboarding, climbing trees and doing all like he played on a social team. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, research which suggests that the mentality of our game should be as many kids playing for as long as possible. And I don't I'm not I'm not desperately in need of elite. And I can tell you one thing, I don't actually believe any of those big scuba clubs are elite. That's not elite to me, because if you look at the World Under-17 Youth Cup final or Youth Tournament, so the elite of under-17s across the world in in the tournament, practically none of them break it, break through. The vast majority of them don't even make it until Under-20 World Cup. The Under-20 World Cup is an amazing tournament. And if any of them go on and win senior international caps, uh, they're very lucky. So what is elite? To me... Um, there's so many problems uh, which are associated with trying to be elite too soon. Every club that walks in the door, that has a child walk in the door, five or six, their ambition should be to be have that relationship with that child until that child brings its children through the doors uh, years later. Every club should want that six-year-old to play for their over 35s. 
But in yeah, Ireland, no, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in Ireland, we've uh, we've had this desire to win things, and I always just say, "Oh, yeah, it's great. You've won the under twelve league. Brilliant. Yeah, who won it last year? Nobody ever remembers. Sure. Everyone's obsession St- with Steve- being the best today." <clears throat> Stephen, ta- us take us through the highlights of that study you did. So you studied um, players at under seventeen international level from two thousand and eight to two thousand and thirteen. So okay. I've pulled out some information from it, but the highlights for you from that are low are low lights, whichever way you'd like to describe them, the, the main uh, learnings from it. Yeah, so the first thing, I picked that uh, cohort because it was the last time we'd qualified for European Championships uh, after a long period. Uh, the Robbie Brady, uh, Robbie Brady played in the 2008 group. So what I looked at, it went all the way up to 2013 because I did the study... Uh, in 2018, I think, but essentially at that stage, uh, somebody may have come through long enough to have been a, a senior international if they were an early uh, adapter. And funnily enough, I just went back through the, the two, 2013 group and Jack Bourne actually uh, has gone on to win the senior cap who wouldn't have been included in the study at the time. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, so what I did was I looked at Ireland's under 17s year on year and then compared them with the team the teams that played in the European under 17 championship finals each year so to get an idea of how our 17s compared with the best in Europe each year for the duration of the study and what jumped out at me is firstly uh for like a third of our players who are playing in under 17 uh international for Ireland in a given year will never play for Ireland ever again um so our drop-off is like uh, three times as much as all of the best in, in, in Europe. So if a kid was in the Spain under 17s, you know, maybe one out of, of a squad won't progress to the under 18s. With us, it was like three or four. So uh, for a lot of the kids, then they might get to under 19s. A quarter of them will get to under 19s and will never play for Ireland again after that. And then, you know, only 5% of them will actually go on and win uh, a senior international cap. So of a gen- of an under-17 squad, essentially, on a given year, only one per year, roughly speaking, would win a senior international cap. Um, but what's interesting to me is, when I, I, I spoke about the world under-17 uh, championships, only 15% of the kids from the other countries, uh, so you're probably talking two, maybe three, of the players who play in the European under 17 championships for their country will go on and win a senior cap. So you have like, say, uh, Holland won the European under 17 championships twice, two years in a row during that period. But only five or six of those players went on to win a senior cap. Some of them only ever even win maybe one cap, but they did at least win one cap. Um, So it's a very, very difficult journey to complete from under 17 to adulthood. And the second thing which jumped out at me, which is really stark, is essentially uh, how few of our players uh, play for a home-based club in comparison to what the other countries do. So 65% of our under-17 internationals over the years were playing for foreign clubs, uh, and it was literally under 7% of the other countries. So we've been fundamentally doing it differently to everybody else by sending our kids abroad. And this fits in with the Brexit thing. And in my, my view, there is very little to support sending a child away to another country before the age of 18, because just being objective, statistically, the gamble isn't worth it. Now there's all sorts of 
anecdotal reasons why people can use uh, player A or player B as an example of how it all worked out in the end. But what they're forgetting, that survivorship bias, they're forgetting all of the uh, the, the people who tried and it didn't work out. And Can I can I just pick one, one statistic that, that stood out for me was the, so there was 176 players, mm-hmm. Irish players within that study over that period. Mm-hmm. And 43 players of that group, which equates to 24%, are no longer paid to play the game. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. amazed at that. That that is, you you could argue, has fallen out of the game completely. Totally. Yeah, mm. they're not yeah. even playing amateur football. Those people. So when you're when, when I was trying to track down 176 uh, players over a period of time, you know, I did a lot of detective stuff, and sometimes mm. you'd find uh, you'd find a match report from. Say you know a kid playing for for Newbridge Town in the in the Leinster Senior League and like, okay great I know where he is, but some fellas who like you know would have been very highly rated schoolboys not even reaching adulthood. And this goes back to what we're talking about: as many as possible for as long as possible. Surely we and want <clears> them playing. Has, has that age category under seventeen, say sixteen onwards, has that always been a kind of a a, a time period where players just naturally? fall out of the game whether it's at elite or, or non-elite level for whatever reason or um, did you did you look into those reasons as to well, why, why do, they uh, don't come through at that age group yeah well there's a there's all sorts of different reasons i didn't go into the whys of it as mm. such uh mm. because then you're talking about doing uh a qualitative study and you probably have to interview them all and, and start sure. trying to spot the trends and the reasons why and like it can be a variety of reasons injuries yeah. uh you know, maybe being there was one guy uh, ended up playing inter inter county GEA, or I think three or four of them ended up playing inter county GEA, who would have been under seventeen internationals for which, it, which in itself is a good outcome. Yeah, you know, at least for they're... for sport, you know, for them to be playing yeah. at a high level in sport. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just think though, also for every country, um, it's difficult for for players to make that make that transition. Like when I looked mm. at say Germany at the same age, you know, there was uh, there was a game. Mario Gotze played in uh, in Kerry. So I did a study, a previous study. This was actually inspired me to really do the comparison. Mm. So uh, Mario Gotze played in Kerry for Germany and uh, it was an under-16 international. And the following year, Germany won the European under-17 championships and uh, went to the under-17 World Cup. And there would have been players in the German squad who were absolutely ripping it up at that age. And then only ever went on to win one or two or play, sorry, play one or two Bundesliga matches and then fell down the fell down the ladder. So it's a very difficult journey for any kid, no matter who they are. Uh, I, I did a presentation to the um, I put a you know Irish uh, football parents workshop together two years ago and I, I put a picture of a kid who won the world uh, under 17 cup with England up on, on the border. So like, who's this fella? And he was a Middlesbrough guy and honestly never played a professional football match in his life. But if you had been talking to his agent when he just played uh, in the under-17 World Cup winning squad, uh, I'm sure he would have valued him very highly and tried to get a great deal for him. But the reality is it's such a long journey. And there there is that natural filter. So going back to Mark's point earlier about like the more players you can get in at the start for whatever reason just for the love of the game that that that's the widest the filter will ever be and i've always felt that you know you'll have you'll have more 
getting into that filter, the more success you're having at international level, because obviously, you know, you have that, um, the role model aspect and, and, you know, kids are interested. And I've always thought, God, if the League of Ireland can make that connection with kids, you know, the more they um, qualify for European tournaments and stuff like that, the more success they have, the more interest and the more people that will play. But obviously you're competing with other games. So the more, the better the rugby's doing, the more young boys and girls are going to play rugby. But obviously that natural filter, <clears throat> you know, when you get to the top of that, you're only going to get the few that are going to come through. So obviously that, um, you know, I suppose you could, you could argue that you'd expect that fall off from under 70 to senior. It's just a natural, only the, the best of the best, really. Uh, Mark, I know you looked at the Belgians um, and, and I would have known uh, some of them involved in, in my time in the FAI. What, what did you glean from that? Because um, we, we always talk about the We can all name off Belgian players that have come through. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'll go back to what Stephen said, first of all, about that he started at 2008. I was actually at that um, tournament in Antalya in Turkey. It was eight years since Ireland had got to um, uh, a European championship at that level. So, I was looking, it was a big piece for the Sunday Tribune sports magazine that they had at the time and I spent whatever it was, nine days out there. And um, you had, I think, eight players from the under-16 team that won the European Championships under Brian Kerr got capped at senior level by Ireland. Most of them just got the one or two caps, I think. You know, so you had, you know, the headline players or John O'Shea, Andy Reid, whatever, but the rest of them, you know, might have had good careers, but one or two caps, that was it. And then if I look back at that 08 team, one of the things, again, just to say it's not just an Irish problem, if I look back at the, I, I had a sort of a five to watch from the tournament. So Thiago, fair enough, Spain won. And we were in a group with Spain and France and um, Switzerland. And what was interesting, actually, we led against France in the first game. Um, they came. Uh, they brought a couple of lads off the bench. One of whom was Alexandre Lacazette, who scored a screamer volley from outside the area, top corner. Played the last ten minutes, but didn't pick him. I picked the French striker who also scored, um, sort of a Trezeguet type, Yanis Taffer. He's now playing in Luxembourg. Um, France also had Gael Kakuta, who is at Chelsea. Who's just had a bit of a nomadic career I think he's he's back with Lance now and then um, Daniel Alexic was a Serbian striker in the other group was brilliant he, again he's a guy who's just played everywhere he's at Istanbul but actually here in Turkey right now and um, Spain won 4-0 against France in the final and uh, Thiago is obviously the standout but there's another guy called Sergio Gontan or Keko Brilliant winger, unbelievable, scored a few goals. I think he might have scored at least one in the final. And you would put your money on him being a future star. And he's now at Deportivo La Coruña, having played for Catania in Italy and various um, Spanish lower league sides as well. So that's that's all to say that, um, you know, it's not just an Irish problem. But with Belgium, what struck me, because um, I covered the Belgian league a lot uh, for a few years, so I would have known these players coming through anyway. But that 2019 tournament, um, 
you know, we were missing Gavin Bazuna and Troy Parrish for, for that game. There's a couple of players who've come through since. But then, you again, you look at the Irish team and think, like, Joe Hodge, he's going to push on and he's had his injury problems since. Um, but Belgium, five of the starting 11 in the final group game against Ireland by March had played senior football in the Belgian top flight. Uh, Martin van der Voort was a goalkeeper, played Champions League football for Genk. Um, Anwar Aytel Hajj, very uh, tidy midfielder. He played a couple of games for Anderlecht this year. He's played 28, started 21. Jeremy Doku was the standout. He went to Rennes for 25 million last season. He's played 30 games in the French top flight, sixth in the league this season. Um, and even if you look at, at some of the other players as well, like France, the top scorer in that tournament was a guy called Adil Aushish. And he actually left PSG. He said, I'm, I'm not getting any games here. I'm going to Saint-Étienne again this season. He played uh, over 30 games at the age of 18. Brian Brobby at the Netherlands went from Ajax to Leipzig or is going from Ajax to Leipzig this summer. These are all the, the top names. But what concerns me is what Stephen's talking about is that we seem to be uh, way, way behind in those terms. Mark, um, Mark, how does that Belgian league, I, I don't know if this is a fair question to ask, but how would that compare to the current League of Ireland Premier Division, even if it's the top division of Belgium or the second division? Can, can you compare them? It was ranked um, number eight. I think it's number nine in Europe now. I think we're 37 or something like that. Okay. okay. Um, so it's a place where young players get chances, you know? And this is this is my big thing, and I think I've talked to this uh, about this with Stephen before. It's 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 probably one of the reasons why from seventeen to twenty one there is such a drop off. Um, it's it's players just aren't getting game time. Whereas once once you come through the Belgium system, you know you you know you will you're, you're being prepared for it anyway because of the way they've they've set up. But I, I believe I believe that jump though in in the League of Ireland structure, and I know it's early early days for it, and and you have to give these things a chance. But I believe that jump from under nineteen to senior is quite a big jump, and I'm not certain there's anything in between. Is there? No, that's definitely uh, an issue for consideration, let's say. Um, mm. So essentially, you know, I, I would have seen many lads who, who stood out in the other 19 League of Ireland, but were probably just a year or so away from being a credible first team player in the Premier Division. But we only have 20 teams to cover the whole country. So it's definitely an issue. If I was, if I was in charge of the decision-making process, what I would love to do, and this is where I feel, honestly, we need a joined-up approach to uh, to player development in this country. To me, what I would rather... I know people have said, I'll oh, bring in an under-23 league. I completely disagree with an under-23 league. I think if you look at English football's under-23s, it's a false uh, environment. It's much better to give people the opportunity to play adult football. So what I would much rather see is essentially every league of Ireland club having a team playing in their local intermediate league. So I know uh, people who've been involved with intermediate leagues for their whole lives probably would balk at the idea of, say, so if you're a, if you're a, a Tolka Rovers or a Cherry Orchard playing against Shamrock Rovers B or Bohemians B or whatever. But if we're being honest, I think that would be much, much better for everybody and not just... Uh, the kids were in the League of Ireland system. So, so say, for example, we had a, a situation where 
So Tolka Rovers are playing in the same league as Bohemians B. And the kid has progressing well, but is never going to be Bohemians first team player. But he's played Tolka Rovers like three or four times over the last couple of seasons. He's developed a relationship with them. They only live, it's only around the corner from him. He'd say, all right, I'll sign for Tolka Rovers. Mm. And it, it's actually keeping people within the game. And imagine how Tulk Rovers would feel every time they play a League of Ireland team or, or Crumlin or any of these teams. They think, we can beat them. We're better than them. They would have a fantastic incentive. Uh, and, and I'm not just using those clubs as an example. You can multiply that by all of the amateur clubs around the country. And I honestly believe our best 19s would have a much better experience from playing against men who want to beat them every week than playing with another bunch of people the same age as them uh, for another couple of years. Um, that's that's my uh, issue on that. And I think the second thing is in terms of having a connected structure, I don't like the fact that um, League of Ireland underage teams can't play schoolboy teams in, say, the FAI Under-17 Cup or, or the FAI Youth Cup. Again, imagine if you're a ringman Rangers, which has produced lots of great uh, players down in Cork. Imagine what it'd be like for you to play against Cork City in an FEIU Cup match or uh, to play against Limerick or play against Shamrock Rovers. That would actually, I think, invigorate the schoolboy game rather than everyone being afraid because obviously there's going to be a mismatch every so often. There's no doubt about that, but that's the same in literally every cup competition in the whole world. Like, Barcelona occasionally play against Spanish third division teams and probably there's fellas who are coming from their job as a teacher uh, get a siesta and then you know rushing over to the stadium when we're playing Barcelona tonight you know it's not unusual around the world Um, but if we are all doing things away from each other we're not actually uh, focusing on the most important thing, which is giving our players the best experience as often as possible for as long as possible. The Grassroots Coach, a community of sharing and learning for grassroots soccer coaches.